If I look a little squinty at times, uh, if I'm looking really close, it's because I'm still healing from my vision surgery. <laughs> and I, I thank you guys for your prayers for me this week. It's been kind of a roller coaster week emotionally. And one of those things was having an awful doctor's appointment with, I won't say which doctor, eye doctor, but one that was uninformed about my surgery healing and basically told me my eyes were going to be janky for life and there was nothing I could do about it and he shouldn't have done this is basically what he told me um, and that was terribly crushing in my heart <laughs> um, but I, I praise the Lord um, got to actually talk to a doctor from the surgery center they said my numbers look great that this is standard that it just takes time uh, and so anyhow I don't know about you guys if you've had an emotional roller coaster of a week in any way uh, but I can relate. It's been quite the week. But I praise God and I thank God for my church family who is there for me through all that praying, comforting, checking in with text messages. Thank you. All that to say, if I'm like, my near vision is what's kind of hard. Um, so I'm doing my best. <laughs> all right. So we're in this series called Kingdom Infiltration, talking about the message that John the Baptist and that Jesus preached. What was their message? If you wrapped it up in one short sentence, it would be repent, change your hearts, your lives. Because God's kingdom has arrived. God's kingdom is here. And so we're looking at what does that mean that God's kingdom is here. But before we jump into that, we're going to have some roundtable discussion. My question for you is, what's your hometown like? Talking about like where you grew up, okay? Your old stomping grounds. The place that feels the most like home to you from your childhood, teenage years, whatever. But what's your hometown like? What, what is the culture like there? What are the people like? And what were your neighbors like? So maybe try to get in groups of like five, four or five, or maybe eight. We have a, a great group tonight, so just kind of include people maybe who are at your table. So I, I grew up in um, the Wichita area, basically. Started off in Wichita, lived in Kichai for a little bit back when I went down to school down the street from BTK, so that was fun. Thankfully, I never met them. So <laughs> I went to Park City. Um, and then ended up doing most of my growing up in Clearwater, Kansas, so they consider that my hometown. But I didn't get there soon enough to really be a part of the town, because it's one of those towns that you can tell which kids are there generationally, and are the, the farmer's kids and stuff. So I was, I was always just a little bit of an outsider. Um, but it was, I mean, it still is one of the most peaceful places on earth to me, where like, as a kid, I could ride my bike down the streets by myself when I was in third grade. I could walk around at night and be safe. As a teenager, um, just a very peaceful place, and I uh, just loved my home church, Clearwater Church of the Nazarene. It's very family-oriented, and um, yeah, that's kind of my hometown background. And then I went to Oklahoma City, <laughs> and Oklahoma City is very different from that, that feel of a town of 20 or 2,500 or so people. Um, and I will say that as a Chiefs fan, it was kind of hard for me in Oklahoma City because I never got to watch the games because guess what team Oklahoma City likes? Dallas, that is Cowboys country. And so I would turn the TV on on Sunday and think, I get to watch a game, like in the middle of my homework, you know, take a break. Nope, I get to watch the Cowboys if I get to watch anything. Uh, but if you go a little further south, a little further away from Kansas City, uh, all the way down into Texas, you'll find just a little bit of Chiefs country. And I want to show you a video about that little slice of Chiefs country in Texas. Hometowns. <laughs> hometowns, especially the really tiny ones, they love their hometown heroes. G 
Jesus, uh, kind of like Patrick Mahomes, only much more awesome, grew up from a much smaller town than White House. He grew up from the village of Nazareth. Uh, now, Nazareth, as you see, does not look so much like a village today. <laughs> it's actually a, a sprawling city of about 78,000 people today. But it didn't really grow into that until the middle of the 1800s, when the Europeans made it into a religious destination as the place where Jesus grew up. Before that, it was just Podunk, Nazareth. <laughs> Podunk since Jesus' day, and honestly, Podunk since it was founded, which was about 1000 BC, around the time of King David. So this is an old city that still exists. It was populated by probably just a few families in Jesus' day. We guess the population was about 400 people when, when Jesus grew up there, which, if we had to compare, would be kind of about the size of Arlington. Uh, just down the highway from us. It was located in the middle of this small basin in the middle of all these hills, and it was really hard to get to. There was actually no road that led to Nazareth. So you didn't, you didn't go to Nazareth unless you intended to go to Nazareth. You didn't drive through Nazareth. Nazareth. And so it was also used for agriculture. You can see the, the hills, they had some terrace gardens, uh, also for sheep. There's uh, shepherding in that area. But Nazareth was truly the, the podunk backcountry area uh, that uh, Nathaniel said, what good? What good could come out of Nazareth? Another thing about Nazareth uh, is archaeologists have found an interesting thing among the houses in Nazareth. They found pits, pits underneath the houses, and uh, they're used for storage. But sometimes in some of the houses, there's a pit beneath the pit. Some of the houses had a pit beneath the pit beneath the pit. Three levels of pits underneath these houses. The bottom two levels were really hastily dug out. The top level used for storage was like a nice basement, right? Uh, but these pits sometimes would go three tiers down, over 16 feet underground. And the best that we can figure is that they were used to hide. To hide possessions, to hide people. Uh, probably uh, dug, the lower pits dug around the time that Jesus lived or uh, within a few decades after Jesus ascended to heavens um, because the people in Nazareth lived with Roman oppression and there was the great revolt of the 50s uh, AD where the people were trying to hide the women, the children, the possessions, hide them uh, from Roman oppression. So Nazareth, it's a tiny backcountry, forgotten town under imperial pressure and it has no claim to fame, really, except for one person, their hometown boy, their hometown hero, Jesus of Nazareth. And because of Jesus, this no-name town all of a sudden was trending. Have you heard about Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus of Nazareth, he did this thing. I mean, Jesus was a common name back then, so you got to have the of Nazareth uh, to know which Jesus you're talking about, right? And so people, Nazareth was on everybody's lips. Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus' old friends and family were excited to welcome him back to their synagogue. There's, I think about, you know, our hometown churches. Uh, back then they had synagogues. They weren't the same thing as the temple, but it was a place to delve into God's word together. Kind of like what we're doing right now, to talk about God's word and read it. And they invited Jesus to come back to his hometown synagogue. Uh, to be their honored speaker, their honored guest who would get to read the scripture for that day and talk about it. So let's see how they might respond to him with the message that he's bringing, which what is his message? 
The kingdom has arrived. Let's see what happens. In Luke chapter 4, Luke places this passage right after Jesus returns from being tempted in the wilderness. So this is towards the beginning of his ministry. Jesus returned from the wilderness in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. So he's, he's touring, he's on his, his speaking tour in the synagogues all around Nazareth in the region of Galilee. And then Jesus went to Nazareth. So it's time to go back to his hometown synagogue. Nazareth, where he was raised. On the Sabbath, he went to the synagogue as he normally did, and he stood up to read. The synagogue assistant gave him the scroll from the prophet Isaiah. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And this is what he read aloud. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners, and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the synagogue assistant, and sat down. So he's sitting down to teach. Every eye in the synagogue was fixed on him. There's like a lot of excitement and tension there. What's he going to say? Because uh, he just read this really important passage about the Messiah, what the Messiah would bring when he comes, right? So what is Jesus going to say? Every eye is fixed on him. And he began to explain to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled just as you heard it. Everyone was raving about Jesus, so impressed were they by the gracious words flowing from his lips. They said, this is Joseph's son, isn't it? I'm going to pause there in our story. And so Jesus has gone home to speak at his hometown synagogue. And it reminds me of going back to my home church in Clearwater uh, to speak there. And I actually get to do that tomorrow and the following Sunday. They've asked me to come out and do pulpit supply and... Um, I just kind of wonder what his experiences were, uh, if they were anything like, like my experiences going back to my home church. I mean, they knew little Yeshua. That was his Hebrew name, Yeshua. They knew little Yeshua from his boyhood days. They knew his Abba, his father, uh, Joseph, and his Ima, his mother, Mary. And they probably had all kinds of stories to tell on him from his childhood and his teenage years. Uh, I get this sometimes, even when I go back to preach at my home church. I remember when you were this tall. <laughs> Your parents are so proud of you. Remember that one time uh, when you did this thing? Or remember, remember that thing? So supportive, so proud, <laughs> so nostalgic, and, and sometimes so familiar. <laughs> that's the, the context. That's, that's the, the culture that Jesus is coming to. These are the people who saw him grow up throughout his life. And he reads a passage from Isaiah, this prophetic passage about the Messiah's arrival. And he rolls up the scroll, and every eye is fixed on him in the room, waiting to hear what good old buddy Yeshua, what little Yeshua, what my brother's best friend Yeshua, my next-door neighbor Yeshua will say. And what does he say? Today, the scripture has been fulfilled just as you've heard it. What? This is Joseph's boy, right? He's the Messiah? The town carpenter is the Messiah? Is that what he's saying? While there were likely some doubters, some naysayers in their midst, which Mark actually talks about that in his record of this. He talks about 
the people who were actually in disbelief because they were so familiar with Jesus, they just they didn't believe it. They probably thought things like, I mean, come on, this, this is Joseph's boy. I used to babysit him. How can he be the Messiah, right? Uh, but Luke tells us that there are also people who are excited by the, what he has said, by the gracious words flowing from his lips. I mean, after all, they got to hear the greatest speaker who ever lived, right? I assume Jesus was the most eloquent, the most powerful, impactful speaker who ever lived. And they, they get to hear him give the greatest news of all time, that this good news that's for the poor, <laughs> that the Messiah has come. And it, he does say, I've come to bring good news to the poor. This word uh, poor doesn't necessarily mean financially poor though it could mean that. Um, this, the Greek word is tokas. But it, tokas, yeah, it's like a PT, long O, kas, tokas. Um, really, it's referring to people who are reduced to begging. People who are destitute, not just financially, but people who may be destitute of position, of honor, of respect, destitute of company, maybe, of companionship. The lowly, the destitute of godly virtues, people who, who um, are sinners and know that they're sinners and they realize that they are spiritually poor, that they are destitute in front of God. People who are destitute of eternal riches, people who are destitute in that they're, they're helpless, they're powerless, they're poor, they're needy. Really, anybody who lacks in anything, whether physically spiritually, even lacking in education. That's the poor that we're talking about in this passage. Not just financially poor, though that's included, but anyone who's desperate, anyone who's reduced to begging, anyone who's desperately needy in any way. Jesus says, I have come with good news for the desperate. He says he's come with hope for the hopeless. He's come with release. For those who've been bound. He's come with recovery of sight for those who are blind. He's come to release captives, to, to free prisoners. That's what the Messiah's work would be. And Jesus says, this is fulfilled today in your very midst. Thinking about um, the overwhelming sense of hopelessness, uh, a desperate sense of having this weight on your shoulder that there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, I told you guys a little bit about this earlier, but that's kind of how I felt this week when I got um, the uninformed news from my not-so-kind eye doctor um, that my vision was messed up, there are no exercises I could do to fix it, that, I, you know, you shouldn't have done this, now you're going to have to live with it, basically, is what he told me. And my eyes, I mean, I couldn't focus them both at the same time, they're still struggling, <laughs> Um, one had astigmatism in farsighted, the other was nearsighted, and they were just not cooperating whatsoever, constantly changing. Um, and boy, that, that scared me to think about spending the rest of my life this way, of struggling to read my phone, of struggling to read music, of not getting to see clearly the faces of the people I love. Uh, I just wept for several days <laughs> um, until I got good news from my other doctor that that doctor was wrong and that this is a normal part of the healing process. But for, for a while there, like, I... I would vent to my loved ones, I would cry to my loved ones, but ultimately I told them this, I know you can't do anything about it. There's nothing that anyone can do about it except for God. Um, and to, to be cast on God in such a desperate way, in such a, a, a needy way, um, 
He is the only one who can fix it. So if you magnify that feeling, because I know mine is pretty small compared to what other people are going through, but if you magnify that feeling of hopeless desperation, of there's nothing I can do to improve this feeling, this, this situation that I'm in, you might get a sense of what the people of Nazareth in Jesus' day might have been feeling. The feeling of people who are oppressed by the world's greatest empire. There's no way you get out from under that. For people who are literally blind, when you're born blind or when something happens to your eyes and you can't see, especially in that day and age, there's nothing that can be done, right? For people who have no way of advancing financially, for those who are trapped in slavery, trapped in prison, for those at the bottom of the heap, for those that have no way out from the bottom of the heap, except for God, Jesus brings good news for those people. The Messiah brings release to them. And I can tell you, I felt just an overwhelming sense of, when I got the release of, this is normal. Your eyes are going to heal. I'm not concerned at all about your readings. Uh, I just felt so, such release and I was able to figure out the rest of life's issues better and not, not felt paralyzed anymore by that problem. It was such a freeing feeling. Jesus comes to bring freedom to people who are bound in that tension, that hopelessness, that despair. He comes to bring freedom. He comes to bring release for them. The word uh, for um, liberty or deliverance or, or freedom, release, it's all the same word in the Greek. It's aphasis, and it literally means to let go. The letting go of someone, the releasing of someone. That's what the Messiah comes to bring, is release. To release people from bondage. To release people from imprisonment. To, to release in the sense of forgiveness. Forgiveness is a letting go. Forgiveness is a releasing. The releasing of sin, that the sin that you felt defined by, that you felt like you couldn't undo, and honestly you can't undo. You're no longer held in bondage to that when the Messiah releases you from that. You are free from that sin. The Messiah has come to unbind people from sin, to give them the remission of the penalty of sin, that, that they no longer need to worry about paying that penalty because he's paid it for us. He's come to bring freedom and deliverance and liberty. This is good news for people who are dealing with inescapable overwhelm. I have a feeling that probably several, if not all of us, at some point in your life has felt inescapable overwhelm. There's been some situation that you've gone through that you just could not see a way out unless God did something. The Messiah brings good news for the oppressed. And the word here in the, the Greek literally means for those who are smashed to pieces, for those who are crushed. For those who are broken by a calamity, have you ever felt crushed? Have you ever felt broken by a calamity? Have you ever felt smashed into pieces? He comes to bring liberty, freedom to those who are crushed. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to the desperate, to the needy, to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed, to liberate those who are smashed to pieces, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he says, this scripture today is fulfilled, just as you've heard it. And this is good news for us today, too. Thousands of years later, it's still good news. 
Jesus came for all people with all sorts of physical ailments and difficulties. But even more importantly, he's come to bring healing and release and freedom for our spiritual brokenness. Jesus came for the spiritually poor, the spiritually blind, people who are spiritually captive, prisoners to the darkness. Now, I want to make sure to, to emphasize that the Messiah has come for both the physically oppressed, the physically broken, uh, the physically um, blind, but also for the spiritual. And in his kingdom, there'll be no more disease, no more captivity, no oppression or poverty or loneliness or sin or death. All will be healed fully in the Messiah's kingdom when it comes in full. But to enter that kingdom, we must experience that release, that forgiveness of our spiritual bondage, that we would be freed spiritually through the Messiah. That's how we enter his kingdom. Recovery of sight must be given to the spiritually blind. Forgiveness for sin, freedom for the spiritual captives. We receive this miraculous work of the Messiah by putting our faith in him. The Messiah has come to proclaim release. Freedom, deliverance, forgiveness, sight, the unbinding of those in bondage. And you would think that this would be great news for the people of Nazareth, right? Shouldn't they be so excited about this? Surely they could relate to hopeless overwhelm. They desperately needed to hear this good news. But Jesus has a few more words to share with them. So then Jesus said to them, this is immediately after, he's still in the synagogue, immediately after he said, this is fulfilled. He says to the people, undoubtedly you will quote this saying to me, doctor, heal yourself. You ever hear that, Casey? Doctor, heal yourself? <laughs> I don't know if it's still a, a common thing or not, but that, I guess that was a saying, an ancient saying, doctor, heal yourself. Do hear in your hometown what we've heard you did in Capernaum. He said, I assure you that no prophet is welcome in the prophet's hometown. And I can assure you that there were many widows in Israel during Elijah's time, when it didn't rain for three and a half years, and there was a great food shortage in the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none other but to the widow in the city of Zarephath in the region of Sidon. That's Gentile country, by the way. So Elijah, the Jewish prophet, the Israel, Israeli prophet, is sent to a non-Jew, a non-Israelite. There were also many persons with skin diseases in Israel during the time of the prophet Elisha, but none of them were cleansed. Instead, Naaman, the Syrian, was cleansed. So again, a very powerful Israelite prophet. And who does God heal through him? Not an Israelite, but a Gentile, a non-Israelite, a foreigner. So when the people at the, the synagogue, when they heard this, <clears throat> everyone in the synagogue was filled with anger. So great news. Now we got anger. <laughs> they rose up and ran Jesus out of town. Did you guys know that Jesus got run out of town by his own hometown? They led him to the crest of the hill on which their hometown had been built so that they could throw him off the cliff. But he passed through the crowd and went on his way. Let's see here. So just real quick, recapping, talking about where Zarephath, the widow, and then Syria, where Naaman's from. This is the Israel border. And so God sent the prophets to bring healing to people outside of Israel. And this is the cliff right here. <laughs> uh, one of the cliffs in Nazareth's area. This might have been the cliff. We don't know. Uh, but it's surrounded by 
lots of hills and lots of cliffs. And so whether it's, they call this, I think, Mount Precipice or something like that, um, whether it's this one or another one, uh, they brought him to the edge of one of their hills that surrounds town, and they were going to murder him, essentially, by throwing him off the cliff. The Nazarenes were excited about deliverance for the oppressed, but ultimately it came down to the thought of, you know, who should benefit first from the Messiah but his own people, right? Who should benefit first but his own hometown? And they tell him, doctor, heal yourself. In other words, um, take care of yourself before working on others. Take care of your homies before working for other towns. <clears throat> Do you hear what you did in Caper Capernaum, which was a neighboring air town. And there's kind of this element of um, criticism, of, of criticizing him of hypocrisy. Uh, this kind of idea of, let's see what you can do. You did these things for other people, but we want to see it ourselves. And Mark even records an element of their disbelief in his account in Mark 6. He says, Jesus said to them, prophets are honored everywhere except in their own hometowns, among their relatives, and in their own households. He was unable to do any miracles there except that he placed his hands on a few sick people and healed them. He was appalled by their disbelief. So Jesus says that a prophet isn't welcome, isn't honored in his own hometown, among their relatives or even in their own households. And we can see that, that God's servants, whether they're prophets or priests or even pastors, they're sent in God's spiritual authority with a calling, with God's message to proclaim. And yet, uh, often the people who are least respected by those who are closest to them, those who... Uh, knew them before their calling, have the hardest time seeing them in light of their calling. Those who live with them get to see their humanity 24-7. Because, you know, <laughs> prophets, priests, pastors, spiritual leaders, they're still human. They have quirks and faults and failures and all. And uh, the people who are closest to them often have the hardest time seeing them in the way that God has called them to be. It can be a real struggle for the households of spiritual leaders, the hometowns of spiritual leaders. Jesus goes on to use uh, two of the greatest prophets as an example, Elijah and Elisha. And even though um, there were widows and lepers in Israel during their time, God didn't send Elijah and Elisha to work miracles among their own people. Instead, he sent them to Gentiles, to those outside of Israel. God worked miracle for, miracles for the outsiders. Interestingly, when Jesus read this messianic prophecy, he abruptly stops before the very end of that prophecy, very end of Isaiah 62 too. If he would have read the whole segment, it would have ended with, he's come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Israel, including Nazareth, interprets this passage as saying that God's favor for Israel included his vengeance on their enemies, the Gentiles, the people who were not Israel. <laughs> to them, it was a package deal. Favor for us means vengeance on those people. For Jesus to announce that God would be working among the Gentiles, and to even work among the Gentiles before he worked among Israel, even before he worked among his own hometown, that was just too much for the Nazarenes to bear. They just became furious and outraged, and they tried to murder him, to throw him off the town cliff. Yet Jesus walks right through them. And it seems that he never visits Nazareth again. The kingdom had arrived, and Jesus' hometown wasn't ready for it. 
They bristled at it. Yes, God made a promise to Israel, and he is keeping that promise. But his calling on Israel to be God's chosen people wasn't to exclude the Gentiles. But rather their calling was for them to make God known among all the nations so that all people could be blessed by knowing the one true God. You see, the kingdom isn't just for the insiders. And the insiders who try to keep the outsiders out will find themselves on the outside, watching the outsiders go in. The kingdom of God is for the outsiders of all kinds, of all nationalities and ethnicities and ages and social classes and economic classes and upbringings and backgrounds. The kingdom of God is for the poor, for those who are begging for it. The kingdom of God is for those who even have just a mustard seed-sized faith. Just enough faith, just a tiny bit of faith, but placed in the right person, in God's Messiah. It can work wonders. The kingdom of God is for those who are so poor, so blind, so needy, so desperate, so broken, so crushed, so hopeless, that at their wit's end, they realize that God is the only way, their only hope. Do you ever feel like that? Because Jesus says you're blessed. Blessed are those who are spiritually poor, for theirs is the kingdom. For people so humbled, so broken, that they wouldn't dare push people away from receiving the same forgiveness, the same release and deliverance that they themselves desperately need. That's who the kingdom's for. The Messiah has come to bring the outsiders in, to make the broken whole, to give sight to the blind, to forgive the sinner, to free the captive, to proclaim release and liberty for all who come to him in faith. So as we wrap up today, my question for each of us is, how are you poor? And when I mean poor, it could be financially, but I mean, what is your desperate need? Do you have any sense of desperation in your life? How are you blind? How might you feel like you're captive to something? Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a situation, a relationship. I don't know. Uh, a habitual sin. How do you feel captive? Maybe it's heart, a heartbreak, bad memories, um, PTSD, whatever it might be. Trauma that you've been through, do you feel captive to something? How do you feel weighed down? What weight are you carrying tonight? How do you feel broken? How are you hurting? Is there any area in your life that you feel hopeless? God has sent his son to proclaim a faces, to proclaim release, deliverance, liberty, freedom to you. The Messiah has come so that you can be whole. My second question for you tonight is, who are the outsiders in your perspective? In our culture's perspective, who are the outsiders in America? In all this world, imagine the person or the people group, the people that you like the least. If you think of someone you don't like, you know, we don't often go there, but think in your mind without saying it out loud of someone that you don't like, whether it's a person you actually know or a people group, a stereotype, right? Think of who do you not like? The people 
who hurt me, the people I can't stand to be around, the people who make me feel threatened and vulnerable, the people who feel less than me, the people I avoid, the people I don't know them personally, but maybe it's a stereotype or a collective of people, but I can't stand them, those people, people who think like that, people who do those awful things. How could anyone do that? People who don't belong here, people who don't deserve a second chance, people that, quite frankly, I would be pretty ticked off if God answered their prayers but didn't answer mine, people I'd rather not spend eternity with. Is there anyone like that? Guess what? Jesus came for those people. Jesus loves those people. Jesus died for those people so that they too could experience the release, the deliverance, the forgiveness, the wholeness that only God can give. In the kingdom of God, there is no us versus them. There's only one family, one church. Paul tells us in Ephesians to conduct yourselves with all humility, gentleness, and patience. Accept each other with love and make an effort to preserve the unity of the spirit with the peace that ties you together. You are one body and one spirit, just as God also called you in one hope. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There is no us versus them in the kingdom of God. There are those who are so poor that they, they know that God is their only hope, their only way, and they put their faith in his Messiah. And God takes us together and he makes us a family. And even the people who don't have faith in the Messiah, even the people who don't recognize their brokenness, their poverty, even the people who act like our enemies still and oppress us still, Jesus even tells us to love them and pray for them, pray for those who persecute us. Through the Messiah, the power of God is working the impossible, taking what was broken and making it whole, forgiving unforgivable sins, releasing the hopelessly captive into freedom. This messianic work is personal, but it's also corporate. It means like in our community, around the world. The personal impact of the kingdom of God in our lives is necessarily tied to the kingdom's impact on our relationships, whether individual relationships, national relationships, international relationships, relationships between people groups, God's work, God's kingdom work in our hearts must be tied to how we relate to other people. Bringing in the outsiders, laying down our prejudices, reconciling enemies, forgiving one another as we have been forgiven by God. So how do you desperately need God's release, God's freedom, God's uh, liberty in your life today? Who do you need to release into his hands? Who do you need to forgive to reconcile with? Is there any hardness in your heart, whether to an individual or a group of people, that you need to forgive them, or maybe you need to repent of that prejudice and release that to the Lord? The kingdom of God is for the humble, the desperate, those filled with faith, and it brings recovery of sight and the working of a basis of release Aphasis, release for you from the bondage of sin, from brokenness, from hopelessness and captivity and addictions and distorted mindsets and wounds and loneliness and despair. 
that ephesus is for you, that release is for you. And also ephesus release through you, in and through you, as you release others from your prejudices and you release your unforgiveness, you release people from the grudges and the bitterness and the resentment that you might hold against them. And in doing so, to release your own heart, to free your own heart, to be able to love even your enemies, as Jesus told us to do, to love our enemies just as God so loved us and forgave us. The kingdom of God is here to bring release. And I think about it as, if you think about a person who's suffocating, or they're, they're holding their breath, hold your breath as long as you can. Let's do that real quick as we close out. Hold your breath. Band, come up. You go ahead and come up. We're, we're going to close out in worship music. But while they come up, hold your breath as long as you can. <laughs> Imagine that you're not in this nice room filled with air that you can just breathe, but that you're stuck underwater or underground or in a place that has no oxygen, right? And once you finally come to your breaking point and you release and you take that first breath, how relieving is it? Maybe even more relieving if there was an air in this room. Um, the kingdom of God is here to bring release. And whatever it is in your life that's that builds up tension that you're feeling as you're holding your breath, God wants to bring freedom and release to you in that. Where do you need to experience that in your life today? And where do you need to give that to someone else in the way that you love and you forgive?